In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. In uh, Petrus Romanus, the final pope is here. Co-authors Tom Horn and Chris Putnam. Chris joins us on the line. They examine St. Malachi's prophecy of the pope said to be based on his prophetic vision of the next 112 popes, beginning with Pope Celestine II, who died in 1144. Malachi presented a description of each pope culminating with the final pope, Peter the Roman, whose reign, it is said, would end with the destruction of Rome and judgment. Chris Putnam, as I say, is uh, with us, co-author, and we'll eventually get around to discussing how Pope Francis I fits into that prophecy, keeping in mind again that uh, Malachi said the final pope would be Petrus Romanus. There are those who argue that the end is nigh for the Catholic Church, certainly for the Pope. In fact, they argue, including my next guest, that Pope Francis I will be the final Pope. And all of this was predicted by St. Malachi, going back 900 years ago. Malachi, writing in Prophecy of the Popes, said that the final pontiff 
would be Peter the Roman, and his reign would end with the destruction of Rome and judgment. The prophecies, first published in 1595, were attributed, as I say, to St. Malachi by Benedictine historian Arnold de Wyon, who recorded them in his book Lignum Vitae. And a tradition holds that Malachi has been called to Rome by Pope Innocent II. While there, he experienced a vision of the future popes, including the last one, which he wrote down in a series of cryptic phrases. According to the prophecy, the next pope is to be the final pontiff, Petrus Romanus, or Peter the Roman. Some Catholics believe that the next pope will basically herald the beginning of the great apostasy, followed by the great tribulation, setting the stage for the imminent unfolding of apocalyptic events, something many non-Catholics might agree with. And here to explain more is the co-author of Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here, Chris Putnam. Chris has a diverse range of interests and life experiences. After earning a music scholarship and studying classical guitar, he performed in various venues with musical theater ensembles and taught lessons. After living the lifestyle of a starving artist, he changed focus to the computer industry and worked for a major technology company implementing encryption protocols and login tools. In his late 30s, he came to the end of himself and turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Since then, his interest in the Bible and theology has driven him to serious study. He earned a Master's of Arts degree in Theological Studies from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary in 2011, in addition to his Bachelor of Science in Religion and Mathematics. As well as his involvement in book projects, he's now pursuing postgraduate studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a member of Providence Baptist Church, where he performs regularly with the Praise Band. He's a member of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the Tau Sigma National Honor Society. His website is www.logosapologia.org. The mission of Logos Apologia is to show that logic, science, history, and faith are complementary, not contradictory, and to bring that life-changing truth to everybody who wants to know. Chris Putnam, how are you? Hey, it's great to be on the show with you tonight. And and we should mention your co-author, of course, Tom Horn, uh, together, the two of you wrote, Petrus Romanus, the final pope, is here. So why don't we start, first of all, give us a a sense of who St. Malachi was. Well, you know, he was the first Irish saint, so he's the the first person from Ireland to be made a saint. Um, You know, he he was known as a, a reformer. You know, you're talking about the 12th century, so you're really, it's really like, right as the the church and really the, the world is kind of coming and, and Europe is coming out of the dark ages, a period really where the papacy had kind of gotten pretty corrupted. But at this point, you know, they were trying to turn somewhat of a new leaf and um, Malachi was trying to straighten out Ireland and he actually made a pilgrimage to Rome to see the Pope about getting some new diocese approved and some various church business. But it was on that trip to Rome in, in 1135 A.D. that uh, is when he, according to legend, had this vision where he uh, saw 112 popes into the future from his day. And that is what you described as the famous prophecy of the popes there at the, at the beginning of the show. And some of these prophecies... Many of them, and you would contend after 1595, you would focus on those that, the popes that uh, came after 1595. Just give us some examples of the accuracy. I understand that he utilized, obviously he didn't name them by name, but he used mottos, which popes often have. They have coat of arms and, and things like that. Give us some examples of St. Malachi's accuracy in predicting the names or the identities of the various popes. 
Well, sure. And, you know, just to clarify, you know, you, you said, you know, the ones after 1595. And, you know, the reason to do that, of course, is that between the time that he allegedly, you know, delivered this prophecy and it was written down in the 12th century and when we can actually prove that, you know, that we have a copy of it, there's a big gap of time missing there. So, you know, one of the criticisms, a lot of the skeptics, you know, even Catholic scholars who are skeptical about this thing will point out that it looks like somebody cooked the books interloping period between when he gave it and the uh, publishing date. So really, just to kind of brush those arguments aside, you really only need to look at the ones after we can prove it was published and widely disseminated. So, you know, I kind of just sidestep that whole debate, and, and I do explain that debate in some detail in the book, but like you said, the thing that is important to me is, is this a real prophecy? Does it have any evidence that it really does predict the future? And, you know, it's widely distributed in 1595, so nobody disputes that as an anchor point. Then, you know, if you look at some of the fulfillments are, are pretty compelling. Um, the one that really captured my attention the most was actually the one for Benedict the Fifteenth. Now he was Pope from 1914 to 1922, and the little Latin motto that was assigned to him in the sequence it said "Religio depopulata." Now that just means religion depopulated. Now this is the kind of prediction that it kind of stands out on the list, to be honest with you, because it's it's a falsifiable kind of claim. You know, religion depopulated—that's kind of a risky prediction. Um, you know, his reign could have been marked by a revival in the church or, you know, all things being equal, you just expect things to kind of remain about the same. It might go up a little or a little down a little bit. Religion depopulated, you know, that's, that's pretty bold. Yeah, he's going out on a limb there for sure. It is. And, you know, and that's kind of the way you would test something like this. And, you know, in remarkable fulfillment, really remarkable to me, uh, 1914 to 1922, is when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out in Russia. And, you know, historians will say 200 million people left the church there because, you know, uh, Lenin and Stalin targeted the churches and the religious leaders, and they even bulldozed them. And there's films of them using wrecking balls, knocking churches down, because they saw religion as something that would, you know, cause people to stand up to the state. You know, with a communist totalitarian regime, that's the sort of thing they wanted to get rid of, so they did. That was the Orthodox Church, was it not? The Russian Orthodox Church? It was both. It was all churches. Okay. But, you know, you know, here we have this prediction, religion is populated, so you have the Bolshevik Revolution, but also this is the, the time when World War I breaks out, which is devastating to Europe and the church as well. So, you know, it really does appear to be a pretty good match because, you know, just to me, the whole rise of militant communism, you know, really, they really did... Uh, try to um, enforce atheism and you know there's lots of testimonies to that end um, Richard Von Brown who's the guy who started the uh, charity called Voice of the Martyrs if you've ever heard his testimony that they would torture him and try to, to force him to say God didn't exist and things like this uh, it, it really does seem to be a very compelling match for that one now you know some of the other ones a lot of them seem to match heraldry and uh, Roman Catholicism uh, heraldry is like the coat of arms, and it's kind of an art and a science, and they have rules and certain symbols mean certain things, but a lot of these phrases seem to match the heraldry of particular popes. So one of the ones that uh, is really a, a, like a dead ringer in recent history is Paul VI, 
who was the Pope in 1963 to 1978, and the, the Latin phrase for him was flos florum, which means flower of flowers. Now, his coat of arms has three what you call fleur de lis, which is a, a, a heraldic device of the French monarchy, and it, it literally means in French flower of the lily. So you have these three little yellow flower things, um, which matches flower of flower quite well. Yes, and again, we should be reminding listeners that this is St. Malachi writing in the 12th century. Mm -hmm. And we can prove that it was published in 1595, so here we are, you know, 400 years later. The first thing I thought, though, was what if, you know, maybe these popes or, or cardinals who are thinking that they might have aspirations to be Pope. Maybe they're aware of this prophecy. and uh, The self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Can we talk a little bit about Pope John Paul I? This was this is also a fascinating one, which I believe has to do with the lunar, the lunar eclipse. That's right, yeah. You know, I'll just finish off the, the thought with Paul VI. All I was going to say there at the end was, I did want to kind of debunk the idea that maybe they just picked it to match the prophecy. Right, yes, well, thank you. The self there are actually rules. There are rules in um, heraldry for, for these guys, and you have to have your coat of arms in place by the time that you're made a bishop. And that's, for most of these guys, that's long before they're even a candidate to be a pope. So you literally have to anticipate it 20, 30 years ahead in your career, which doesn't really seem likely, because you'd have to know when the next pope was going to die and, you know, when you would be in the sequence. That's an excellent so point. It, so to cover their bets, all of the bishops thinking one day I might be cardinal and then I might be pope, right. they would all have a fleur de lis as part right. of their coat of arms. ridiculous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that that can explain it away. Yeah, like you said, John Paul I... He's interesting because he only lived as Pope for 33 days, and there's a lot of people that think he was poisoned. In fact, the Jesuit who kind of left the Jesuit order to write books, Father Malachi Martin, uh, he actually said that John Paul I was poisoned because he was going to expose a bunch of high-ranking Vatican officials who were Freemasons. Um, and this was all tangled up with some skullduggery at the Vatican Bank. And oh, a lot of things happened back around that time. This was in 1978. And, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a new book out called Exo Vaticana, which kind of covers the Vatican strange interest in extraterrestrials. Ah, yes, um, they have that huge uh, telescope down, mm -hmm. I believe, is it in Tucson or uh, Arizona? It's that outside, right outside of Tucson. I actually visited it last fall. It's, uh, it's on Mount Graham. Uh, near Safford, Arizona, little town. And yeah, I, me, me and my co-author Tom Horn toured that facility. But the reason why I mentioned that is, well, let me, let's just talk about John Paul I, like he said. So he, from the midst of the moon was his Malachi prophecy. Now, what kind of makes it a, a, a fulfillment is that the day that he became the Pope was actually a half moon. I mean, it was a perfect half moon. And then, you know, he, he only lives 33 days. So he was also from the Diocese of Bel Luno. Well, in Latin, that would translate to beautiful moon, Bel, beautiful, Luno, Muno. So, you know, he actually came from an area called the beautiful moon. He ascended the papacy on a precise day of a half moon. So that corresponds pretty nicely to the midst of the moon. But what's really strange is this: this year, 1978, was the famous year of three popes. So Paul VI, the one we were just talking about, dies. They elect John Paul I. Uh, he becomes Pope right on the half minute, as we said. Um, he's only Pope for like 33 days. Right in the middle of that 33 days, there was a massive UFO flap 
ever run. And this is really well documented. It's not just the sort of thing that you know, we just went hunting for. In fact, when we wrote the book, Petrus Romanus, I didn't have any idea about the UFO incident. But when we, we started researching Exa Vaticana, one of the things I tried to do was just, let's just research, you know, UFO sightings over Rome and see if there's any pattern or any, you know, suggestive sort of timing. Well, this was the most amazing thing because this is like a, having three popes in one calendar year is pretty unprecedented. But the UFO sightings over Rome this year were so widespread and so well documented that it's just incredible. There's really been no other time like it in history. In fact, it made the New York Times in America in 1978. Which is interesting because if you flash ahead about 30 years, you had that interesting announcement by the chief of Vatican astronomer at the observatory you just mentioned near Tucson saying, Mm -hmm. or I believe he's the chief astronomer who issued this statement, saying it's okay for Catholics to believe in E.T., yeah, that was actually, he, he delivered that from Rome. Uh, it was by uh, Father Jose Funes, and he's an important character. Uh, he is the leader now of the Vatican Observatory Research Group, and he actually um, issued a document that was uh, posted in Latin and in English called The Extraterrestrial Is My Brother. Um, so he went quite a bit further and just said it's okay to believe in him. I mean, they've... You know, you can look, you know, one of the things that I challenge listeners to do who kind of think that I'm really getting out on a limb when we start talking about the UFOs and the alien thing, well, you know, this is the stuff that they're talking about. You know, our readers who had read Petrus Romanus were asking us these questions, well, what do you make of all these statements that the Vatican's making about that? So it's really their own language. Um, what I would challenge listeners to do that, just kind of think this is just going too far is just type in in your favorite search engine and type baptize extraterrestrial and hit search and, and you'll get hundreds of hits and they'll all be interviews with Jesuit astronomers from what they call the Vatican Observatory Research Group and the acronym is VORG so I had a little bit of fun with that well, this is a this is a, actually a, a great sort of little uh, a preview because Chris I'd like to have you and maybe Tom back on and we can talk about the new book uh, sure. I sort of got you a little bit sidetracked, although it was certainly okay. worth it was worth the side journey. Thank you for that. But let's get back to. Uh, okay. Can we move on to Pope John Paul II? Sure. Uh, because I believe the motto there has something to do with the labor of the sun. Yeah. So, yeah. So as soon as he's, you know, as John Paul dies, they they actually they they um, embalmed his body like within 24 hours, which a lot of people thought was very suspicious and maybe evidence of that some kind of hanky-panky went on. So then John Paul II is elected, and of course he's the famous pope that everyone remembers. Now his motto was from the labor of the sun. Now this one is, is even more compelling in a lot of ways. He was, uh, you know, a lot of people would interpret labor of the sun perhaps as eclipse of the sun. Um, so he was actually born on May 18, 1920, during a partial solar eclipse. Um, and then to kind of top that off, it turns out that he was buried during a hybrid eclipse as well. So from the labor of the sun, um, it's a lot of people think that, you know, that is the, the fulfillment of that prophecy, the, is the eclipses associated with his wow. birth and, and burial. And it, again, it bears repeating for those just joining us. The, this was a prophecy made by St. Malachi, 900 years ago. Mm-hmm. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with 
purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. All right, so and, that's... Uh, so, you know, those are, are pretty interesting. Now, you know, the, the other thing, you know, like we talked about, could this be a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, my co-author, Tom Horn, tends to think that, you know, a lot of times it is, and there is evidence that there have been several popes who seem to have gone out of their way to claim this thing for themselves or to make it fit. Now, one of those will just be going back in time. Like, we started with Paul VI. If we just go back to the pope before him, it was... Pius the Twelfth, um, and you know this is one of the prophecies that you know I think it would be fair to say it was kind of vague. You know when you when you hear it, his was Pastor Angelicus, uh, which is just Latin. It just means angelic shepherd or angelic pastor. Now you know that seems like that's pretty vague. It'd be easy for any pope to kind of claim that one, but that's exactly what happened. Um, he not only claimed it of himself. Uh, this was during. World War II, you know, and he got criticized as being Hitler's pope in a book by John Cromwell, um, and so there's some controversy over whether he was kind of complicit or whether he didn't say enough about the uh, the Holocaust and all that, but you know, the thing that's really interesting, though, is that he actually produced a propaganda film about himself and titled it, and and Pastor Angelicus. That was like the name of the film. And it even said how, you know, Pope Pius XII characterizes the day in the life of the St. Malachi prophecy. <laughs> and so he literally applied it to himself and produced a documentary film about himself and named it after his Malachi motto. Now, you know, why is that such a big deal? Well, it, you know, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy. Whether, you know, he made it happen or not, it still counts because, you know, when you look at the sequence, some of these, you know, people couldn't manipulate, like the one we started with, Benedict the Fifteenth. you know, religion depopulated. That really couldn't have been manipulated by a pope. But then you have this one, and this was obviously one that was, but it's still a fulfillment. And the thing that makes it... Uh, Important is that there are Jesuits and, and Catholic scholars who try to poo-poo this prophecy and, and distance themselves from it and say, oh, we think this is just a forgery and we don't really take it seriously. Well, it's really hard for them to say that with a straight face when they have one of their popes, you know, who is an infallible leader of the church by their own doctrine, who specifically claimed it of himself. He right. certainly tried to distance it from them. He actually claimed it. Now... Interestingly, I think you could say the same about the Pope just previous to Francis, uh, Pope Benedict XVI. The glory of the olive. The glory of the olive. Now, because of that prophecy, many people, and especially the Catholics, who really, there are a lot of Catholics that pay attention to this prophecy who have been believing it for many years. And they would try, typically, to predict who the next papal candidate's going to be based on the motto. Now, interestingly, you know, they look at glory of the olive. Well, the olive branch is a symbol of the Benedictine monastic order. So for that reason, you know, a lot of the Catholics that, that put a lot of stock in the prophecy were watching for a Benedictine monk 
to be elected pope. Now, when Cardinal Ratzinger from Germany uh, got the nod, they were kind of shocked because he was not a Benedictine monk. Um, but, you know, the pope gets to pick his papal name. You know, he was Joseph Ratzinger, cardinal, and he picked the name Benedict, which is another instance of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It would seem so. I mean, are there are there other, possi- other possible uh, explanations be- behind the glory of the olive, aside from the fact that it was sort of the symbol of the Benedictines? Well, sure. Um, well, one of the ones, I mean, a lot of people have kind of pointed to this idea that, you know, okay, this is the next to the, he was the next to the last pope on, on the list. Now, interestingly, Jesus gave... Uh, a, a prophetic discourse on the end times. Uh, it happens to be in Matthew chapter 24. Um, some of it is in Luke 21. Um, and some of it is in Mark chapter 13 in the Gospels. And it was kind of his discourse on the way things would be going uh, near the time of his return, which, of course, would ensue the end times and the events in the, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Now, because of that, it's called the Olivet Discourse, because it was given on the Mount of Olives um, outside of Jerusalem. Well, some people associated this phrase, glory of the olive, with the Olivet Discourse, and being that the sequence of the prophecy has it as the next to the last, Jesus talked about in that discourse um, what he called birth pains of the end times. Now, this is the kind of a phrase that you're probably familiar with. He'd say things like wars and rumors of wars, um, earthquakes and famines. Um, and so that we would see these things coming as signs. Now, he said, these aren't the signs that the end is here, but they are a sign that it's coming, it's near. They're like birth pains. You know, if you kind of think of the analogy, uh, the way birth pains work is they come closer and closer together, you know, and then the water breaks and, and boom, you know, it's on. Um, so a lot of prophetic scholars have been paying attention. And, you know, it's probably true that in the 20th century, you've had the, the greatest wars and, and the most bloodshed in world history. I, I think anybody who's paying attention to the news these days, looking at the headlines, could safely argue the water has broke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the earthquakes really have seemed to increase just in the last few years. I mean, I really have never seen anything like what we've seen. And we had that huge one in Haiti, uh, the, the, the one in Japan with the nuclear reactor and all that. And then we had a massive one in Chile. Um, there's just been a lot um, of, of weather-related events and earthquakes. And, you know, I would say that those birth names have, have gotten really close together. And, yeah, most of the people that I know that follow... Bible prophecy uh, would it concur with that assessment. Now, just a remarkable prediction that you made in that book. Obviously, it was published well before the actual event, and that was the the um, resignation of Pope Benedict, which was, I believe, the first pope to resign in 600 years. Now, how were you able to make that prediction? Well, you know, I, I don't like to try to claim any sort of prophetic powers or anything for myself. Um, it was actually based on this prophecy and some of the research that I did and, and rumors that were coming out of Italy. Now, just to explain, you know, when I first set out to investigate this Malachi prophecy, you know, I really wasn't predisposed to believing extra-biblical Catholic prophecies or anything. I, you know, I'm a believer in, in the biblical 
uh, prophecies. And that was kind of my point of interest because I saw the intersection between the ending of this and and the prophecies in the book of Revelation and, and the ones that we spoke of and the, all of that discourse and whatnot. But So I read a lot of books about this Malachi prophecy. Now, a lot of these are written by various Catholic scholars over the years. Now, one of the more interesting ones was a book written in French by a Belgian Jesuit named René Thibault. Now, he published this book called The Mysterious Prophecy of the Popes in 1951. Um, and I actually found it at a university library and they brought it up from the basement. I don't think anybody had looked at it in 20 or 30 years. And uh, so I had to translate it from French. Now, the thing that was just incredible is that he in, he predicted the arrival of the final pope on the list in the year 2012. Um, and he didn't just do that kind of in a trivial manner. He did it all throughout the book. And it was like a big feature of the book. In fact, he found like just these fanciful encryption codes uh, within the Latin text of the prophecy. He did all these kind of mystical calculations, and he kept landing on April 2012 as the arrival of Petrus Romanus. Now, you, know, you have to imagine, at the time, this was probably December or January, or maybe January 2012, or probably December when I first got this book and found this information, and we're trying to get the book out by maybe March of 2012. And like, so we started rushing just to get the book published because nobody would believe us if it really happened if we didn't get it out in time. So we literally, you know, really put the rush on to get the book out by April of 2012 when he said that this would happen. Well, there was also rumors uh, from the Vatican Insider, which is a magazine in Italy, that Pope Benedict's health was not too good and they were speculating that maybe he would retire for that reason and you know so we just kind of put two and two together in the book and we said well you know if this Belgian Jesuit is right um, then we would expect that Pope Benedict will step down for health reasons in April of 2012 you know and we said well you know any time in the year 2012 would be a pretty incredible uh, prediction given that he wrote this down probably in 1950 um, well of course the year 2012 came and went but it, you know, it really made our book kind of sensational because everybody was already thinking apocalyptically with the Mayan calendar and, and all this 2012 stuff. But you know, what, what would a Jesuit writing in 1950 have, you know, 2012 wasn't on the radar when he, when he wrote that. Uh, he had no, you know, no reason to pick the year 2012 other than he really thought it would be. So... You know, a lot of people would say, well, 2012 came and went, it didn't happen, right? Well, it actually turns out that, that he was pretty dead on right. Now, here's why. When Pope Benedict did step down this year, it was February 11, 2013, I believe. And I remember it pretty well because it kind of changed everything for us. Uh, we'd kind of given up on Rene Thibault and his... 2012 prediction, but the day that Benedict made his announcement, of course, lightning struck St. Peter's Basilica. That was pretty... That was absolutely astounding. That was spectacular. But um, even more spectacular for, for this prediction um, was that in the New York Times, that very day, there was a, a little, little part of the paragraph. I got it right here in front of me, actually. It says, that the resignation was long in the planning was confirmed by the editor of the Vatican newspaper who wrote on Monday that the Pope's decision, quote, 
was taken many months ago after his trip to Mexico and Cuba in March of 2012, end quote, and kept with, no, and kept with the reserve no one could violate, end quote. So literally, when he did a little South American tour in March of 2012, when he got back from that, that was the end of March, he told a select group of his friends that he was stepping down. Now, if he had followed suit right when he said that, that would have been April 2012, right when this guy said it in 1950. Um, That's pretty, pretty scary. Incredible. Yeah. So that yeah, it it's clear. Then the decision was made in 2012. So yeah. officially, he he stepped down in 2013. But the decision was made exactly was. as uh, as the Jesuit priest indicated. Now, Chris, it, obviously, the, the your book came out before Pope Francis uh, was uh, named Pope, uh, and you had your own list of of uh, sort of you know ten possible candidates to succeed right. Benedict, which would fit the. The, the, the prophecy of the popes, meaning that the final pope had to be Peter the Roman. And and one of those was uh, a cardinal, uh, Tarsicio Pietro Avasio Bertoni, the cardinal uh, secretary of state. Uh-huh. Obviously, that didn't happen, but that would have fit Peter the Roman. I want you to explain how a number of popes that you listed in your book might have fit in nicely with St. Malachi's uh, prophecy. Well, you know, the main guy that, that seemed to be really compelling at the time was the one that you mentioned right before we went to the break, Tarsicio Bertoni. He was the number two in charge. He's the Secretary of State for Benedict XVI. Now, you know, the really obvious thing is that his middle name was Pieretto, and he was an Italian from Rome, so he would quite literally have matched that Peter the Roman title, but, you know, just... You know, right off the bat, though, one of the things that we also said in the book right, you know, all along was that, um, you know, all popes claim to be the next Peter in line. Uh, the claim to the authority of the papacy is apostolic succession from the apostle Peter. So they even call the papacy the Petrine office, where they turn the name Peter into an adjective, Petrine. So, you know, they all claim to be a Peter in that sense. And it's also also very, very unlikely that any pope would name himself Peter because that exactly. would just be the height of uh, hubris. Right, exactly. Um, and so, for that reason, I mean, if you look at what other scholars have written over the years, for instance, Rene Thiebaud, who wrote the book in 1950, what did he think of it? He thought the title Peter the Roman meant, was a symbol that meant that this final pope would... Um, encompass all of the papacy. So he really saw it as the final pope would be such a compelling character that he would somehow have the personality of, the, of every pope in the whole succession of, of the office. Uh, so he kind of saw it that way. Um, you know, so, you know, they are, they, they are a claim to the successor of Peter and they're the leader of the Roman church. So it could be just as simple as that. Um, as a symbolic title, and you know that's kind of the way that I'm choosing to look at it now. There are people who have um, looked at Pope Francis and uh, have found that you know if you look at the long version of his name, his father's name was Pietro. So in the middle of his name, there is a Pier- like uh, Saint Francis of Sisi. I'm sorry. So what pe- some people have done is he t- he chose the name Francis. Francis of Assisi has a, has a Pietro in his middle name. Now, I kind of think that 
that's just kind of pushing the literalism too far. Um, I, for me, that's not necessary. Some people are choosing to look at that as the way it, it, it matches Francis because he chose the name Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi has Pierto in his middle name. But, you know, I, if you look at the, the rest of the prophecy, just the ones that we talked about, none of them really tried to give a literal name for any of the popes. Um, they're, they're all symbolic. Um, like Gloria the Olive or Flower right. of Flowers. I mean, they're all they're all symbols, and and they either match an event during the papacy, or they, or something about the coat of arms, or some kind of descriptor, and, and you know they're pretty metaphorical and like that. So, to me, to try to press it to be literal for the final pope is to kind of decontextualize the prophecy because it really didn't yeah, do that. That's I an mean, excellent it, point. It, it, yeah. Did, did Malachi, I, I though... I think it's necessary. No. Did he leave other clues, though? Did he mention a, a, another motto or, a, or a, a heraldry, heraldry for Francis I, or was it simply uh, Petrus Romanus and that was the be-all and the end-all? Uh, okay. Well, you know, the final pope, the, the prophecy for the final pope is quite a bit different than the rest of the list. Um, the, the one for the final pope is a little paragraph. It's not a little phrase. It says, In the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman, who will nurse the sheep in many tribulations, and when they are finished, the city of seven hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people the end. So that's the prophecy for our current pope. Now, to me... The way that we find out that this one is fulfilled is if those events happen. And, you know, if they don't, you know, if his papacy ends and they elect another pope and Rome isn't destroyed and, you know, the tribulation doesn't start, then, okay, it's false. Um, you know, some people are, are, you know, expected that it would literally be somebody named Peter and blah, blah, blah. And so they're thinking, well, it's not true now. But, I mean, I don't think you can say that until, you know, his papacy ends with kind of uneventfully. Um, you, so, you talked about the the uh, you know, the the persecution of or the tribulations in the church. It's interesting. Not too long ago, the chief exorcist for the Vatican uh, said that the devil is loose inside the Vatican. Satan is loose. Oh. And now, the, the the chief exorcist for the, for those who might say, well, exorcism that you know that belongs back in the Middle Ages. Middle Ages. But but uh, Pope Benedict uh, was a was a firm believer. In the right of exorcism, and 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 uh, I believe uh, you know gave a lot of credence to this particular individual. What, what did you make of that statement? Well, he wasn't the only one. Um, Malachi Martin also said very similar things. In fact, he took it a little bit further. Uh, but you know, I absolutely do believe in a literal, personal Satan who is the enemy of the Church of Christ. I think he is really the enemy of human beings. Um, he, The Bible describes him as the little g God of this world. Now, people that aren't familiar with biblical theology might be a little shocked about that, but yes, that's in the letter that Paul wrote to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, The God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers. Um, so literally, the Bible teaches that we're kind of in a matrix, <laughs> um, that there really is a, a an illusory worldview going on, and you know, and I've written about that extensively. But um, you know, I think that a lot of that has infiltrated some of the high levels of the Vatican. Um, 
Yeah, we I touched on it a little bit when we talked about John Paul the First and how a lot of people think he was poisoned for maybe exposing some Freemasons that had infiltrated the Vatican hierarchy. Well, Father Malachi Martin uh, wrote that there was organized Satan worship in the high levels of the Vatican, going on in Rome within the Vatican. In fact, he wrote that they did a ritual in 1963 called the Enthronement of the Fallen Archangel Lucifer. Now, just so your, your listeners are clear on this, the guy that I'm quoting for this information was a Jesuit priest. He was an advisor to three popes. He was in Rome, an advisor to Paul VI and John the Twenty-Third. Um, so he was there, and he had three PhDs. He was a very high-level and respected insider in the Vatican. So I'm not. This isn't just some kind of loopy uh, conspiracy theory. This is kind of a whistleblower. Um, and Malachi Martin died in 1999. He was working on a book about how the Vatican had been absorbed into the New World Order, and he took a tumble down some stairs and died in the hospital shortly after. Now, some people think that maybe he was pushed, because that book never got written. But he did write about this uh, Satanism infiltrating the Vatican. He even quoted Paul VI, the Pope that we talked about, has had even made a statement that, um, you know, the smoke of Satan has entered the sanctuary. And that's pretty much a direct quote. Um, I'm quoting it from memory, but it was just, I think that was pretty accurate. Right. Um, if, so, if uh, Chris, we just and we just have a few moments uh, left, three or four minutes, but if, in fact, uh, Francis I is the final pope, how do you see events unfolding from here? Okay. Well, the thing that makes Francis really interesting is that he's the first Jesuit pope in history. Now, this is unprecedented. Now, Malachi Martin, the first book that he wrote when he got a release from his vows was an expose of the Jesuit order, the order that he was in, that he had just left. Now, he thought that they were undermining uh, the theology of the church, and he wrote uh, in his book, The Jesuits, there's a war between the Jesuit order and the papacy. And he saw that kind of liberal, modernist, communism kind of ideas were infiltrating the church through the Jesuit order. Now, if there was a war between the Jesuit order and the papacy, you know, when he's talking about this like 20 years ago, now today we have the first Jesuit pope. That tells me the war's over and the Jesuits won. Now, do I see this playing out? Well, that's kind of where we go to our second book. Um, they have made a lot of really controversial statements about outer space, about extraterrestrials. Pope Francis has a master's degree in chemistry. He started his career thinking about being a scientist. Then he went in to the Jesuit order. Um, how would we connect these two books, Exo Vaticana and Petrus Romanus? Well, when we turned in the manuscript for Exo Vaticana, we didn't know who the new pope was going to be. But it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, the leader of the Vatican Observatory Research Group is Jose Funes. He happens to be from Argentina. He is the, the leader of the, of the observatory group, and guess who brought him into the Jesuit order? Cardinal Bergoglio. Pope Francis brought in the leader of the Vatican Observatory Research Group as a neophyte. Ah, that I did not know. That's interesting. Yeah, that was one of the things I uncovered after the fact, and you just can't make it up. So there's a very intimate connection between Pope Francis and Jose Funes, who wrote this essay, The Extraterrestrial is My Brother. Now, you know, one of the things that, that our hypothesis in the second book is that for a lot of these events and Bible prophecy 
to happen in very short order. You know, if they're going to happen in the next few years, like really fast, there's going to have to be some kind of unprecedented paradigm-changing event. And, you know, we think that the world is really poised for something like an alien disclosure type event, and we think that that would probably be the catalyst that would kind of bring the world together and set up maybe a one-world religion and the sorts of things that Bible prophecy talks about. So that's kind of our working hypothesis. Well, that's funny, uh, or not not funny. It's 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 interesting. Um, you know, we're doing this show on the heels of the uh, citizens hearing on disclosure just wrapped up recently in Washington D.C. Uh-huh. Uh, before a panel of five former members of Congress, uh, right. all of whom, many of them, were skeptics, but uh, all essentially those that were able uh, signed on to. Uh, you know, this announcement wanting to press the United Nations for, you know, further hearings and more investigations and so forth. So, uh, it, it, you know, the, the parallel there is, is quite, uh, quite interesting. Yeah, the timing is, is quite fortuitous. And some of the testimony really does coincide with the things that we wrote in XO Vatican. In fact, Daniel Sheehan was one of the witnesses, uh, a pretty high-ranking attorney. He was the lead counsel for the Jesuit order. He actually tried to subpoena the Vatican UFO records for President Carter and was refused twice. So when they say they don't have any UFO secrets, they are definitely keeping some secrets. That's fascinating. Well, it is rumored that the Archbishop, Archbishop of Los Angeles was present, present with President Eisenhower during this secret meeting with several uh, races of, yeah, uh, of ETs. Yeah, Listen, uh-huh. uh, Chris, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Chris. Okay. Chris. My pleasure. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.